Good morning. You've had a good week? Do you find good? How do you define good? Rain? A little rain. We got some scary rain for a while, didn't we? And, but necessary rain. So that's, that's helpful for us. Uh, so I want to talk with you today about prayer. And my, my big idea is that prayer is more. Prayer is more than ministry. It's more than just a discipline. It's part of what constitutes us as children of God. And this constitution is why we pray. There's a closeness of fellowship that we have with God that needs prayer as an aspect in order for the relationship to flower. Let me start with a story. When, we, uh, when we're little, we approach our parents. When we approach our parents, we do so in different ways and for different reasons. And, of course, we begin as children. Our parents teach us to talk. We have that relationship with them. And we know that some things we can say as we learn to talk, and some things we learn we can't say as we learn to talk. Oh, no, honey, we don't talk this way in our house. Anybody ever heard that? Okay. We spend time with our mothers and fathers, and we talk to them, and we listen, and we talk, and we listen. And we talk, and we listen, and we cuddle, and we grow and mature slowly. Our conversation with our parents in that growth changes. We get siblings. We have to talk with them. And then we start to ask for things like gummies and candy and honey and syrup. But we don't ask for chores. Sometimes our parents become a wee bit tense when we pester them and ask for things over and over again. Things for which they've already told us no. And we learn to stop asking because sometimes our parents will not give us what we ask for because we want to consume the objects of our, of our desires on our own lusts. And sometimes it turns a wrong way. And if we persist in asking for the wrong things and we cannot force our parents' hand, then we separate ourselves and go elsewhere to try to get what we want when things may not be quite right. This doesn't always happen, but if it does, if the rebellion continues, it may last for some time. I remember my children asking for things. Brenda and I would say no to consistently. And I remember saying, honey, please do not continue to ask me for things for which you know I will say no. I don't want to tell you no, but if you practice asking for these things, You'll grow up thinking that's all you'll hear from me, or, you'll, or that's all you'll hear from your mom. So over the last few weeks, we've talked about prayer, and we know that prayer is talking to God. Last week, Pastor Jason talked to us about having our ideas in prayer shaped by Scripture, yes, because God talks to us. 
in Scripture, and we talk to him in prayer. And Pastor Jay reminded us that we pray to the Father in the name of the Son, because Jesus said so, and the power of the Spirit of God in us enables us to do that. But we're praying because we've been informed by Scripture, we're asking certain things to pray for. And we know from other parts of Scripture what things we ought not to pray for. Most of our prayers, most of our prayers are consumed with two things. As I look back over the history of prayer meetings and individual prayers, there are sometimes when there's a disaster, and we pray for those, but that's an urgency. But most of the time we're praying for work or we're praying for our health. Yes, there are other things, but those two consume the bulk of our prayers. But today I want to look with this idea of growing and maturing in our relationship with our parents, because there's a parallel there. It's not a great parallel, but it's a parallel with how we talk to God. But I don't want to look at our individual talking to God as much as I want to look at our corporate talking to God. How we pray together as the body of Christ when we come together this morning, when we come together on Wednesday nights to pray, when we go into small groups and pray there. Paul Miller has written a book called Praying Church, and he talks about our praying together. He says, corporate worship, corporate prayer in worship is critical. Prayer is not a ministry of the church. It's the heart of ministry through which the real functional leadership of the intimate union of the Spirit and Jesus formed at the resurrection operates. If Scripture informs our prayers, and I don't mean we're just reciting prayers from we've learned from Scripture or reciting passages themselves, but the ideas that are there that we know what God expects, we know what God doesn't expect from us. We, we have to make those distinctions too and not misapply Scripture. But the Spirit of God comes in among us. Jesus said in John 7, I'm going to be a little bit in John, a little bit in Romans. You don't have to turn there. But we're going to spend the bulk of our time going through Acts. But in John 7, On the last day of the feast, the great day, Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. You've heard this. Now this he said about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive, for as yet the Spirit had not been given because Jesus had not been glorified. Not yet been glorified. So the Spirit of God, when we come together, the Spirit of God ministers to us. He ministers through us in prayer in special ways when the time for prayer comes out of our mouths. In Acts 2, Acts 2, you can... Turn there if you'd like. Acts 2 shows us that when we pray together, as all believers do, with a devotion, more than a habitual discipline, that's important. A habitual discipline of prayer is important, but, but when we come together, that discipline is in place. So, so coming together, having this fellowship, having this devotion is what what we're thinking of. And we do this because we are children of God, especially when we come together in addition to the times we pray individually. Acts 2, verse 1. When the day of Pentecost had arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting, and divided and 
divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Now there were dwelling in Jerusalem Jews, devout men from every nation under heaven. And at this sound, the multitude came together and they were bewildered because each one was hearing them speak in his own language, in his own dialect is the Greek word. And they were amazed and astonished saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each one of us in his own native language, dialect? So some of them heard him say the gospel with a little bit of a drawl. Those regional variations happen. I'm from Texas. You'd be nice. It's okay to, yeah, y'all be nice. Are they not each, are, are they not speaking in each of us here in our own native language, Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt and the parts of Libya belong to Cyrene and visitors from Rome. both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabians. We hear them telling in our own tongues the mighty works of God. And all were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others mocking said, they're filled with new wine. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, men of Judea and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. For these people are not drunk as you suppose, since it is only the third hour of the day, nine o'clock. But it is what was uttered through the prophet Joel. And in these last days it shall be, God declares that I will pour out my spirit on all flesh and your sons and your daughters shall prophesy, and your young men shall see visions, and your old men shall dream dreams. Even on my male servants and female servants in those days, I will pour out my spirit, and they shall prophesy, and I will show wonders in the heavens and above, in the heavens above, and signs on the earth below, blood and fire and vapor of smoke. The sun shall be turned to darkness and the moon to blood before the day of the Lord comes, the great and magnificent day. And it shall come to pass that everyone who calls upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. For David says concerning him, I saw the Lord always before me, for he is at my right hand that I may not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue rejoiced. My flesh also will dwell in hope, for you will not abandon my soul to Hades or let your Holy One see corruption. You have made known to me the paths of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. Brothers, I may say to you with confidence about the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. Being therefore a prophet... David, and knowing that God had sworn an oath, sworn with an oath to him that he would set one of his descendants on his throne, he foresaw and spoke about the resurrection of the Christ, that he was not abandoned to Hades, nor did his flesh see corruption. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses. Being therefore exalted at the right hand of God and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God made him both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. Have a nice day. And he stops. 
Now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brothers, what shall we do? And Peter said to them, Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and for your children and all who are far off, everyone whom the Lord our God calls to himself. And with many other words, he bore witness and continued to exhort them, saying, Save yourselves from this crooked generation. So those who received his word were baptized. And there were added that day about 3,000 souls. Someone's counting. And then they devoted themselves. Who's the they? The 120 and the 3,000. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayers. What are the four elements children of God are devoted to? They were devoted to the teaching of the apostles. What does that mean they're devoted to? Scripture. The content of their teaching more than their style. They were learning God's word. Second, they devoted themselves to the fellowship of other believers. Are we not? Do we not all have the same blood in our veins? If you understand my meaning, we've trusted Christ. We are siblings and we are devoted to one another because that's what siblings do because of what they are. They devoted themselves to the breaking of bread. This expression in the New Testament has to do both with a meal and the Lord's table. I think here it probably refers to their devotion to the service of worship together and participating in the ordinances. And fourth, they were devoted to prayer. They were devoted to prayer. Okay, I want to ask you a question. Don't answer, but think. What are you devoted to? Okay, so... What's number two that you're devoted to? Okay, so now I want to ask, whatever it was, and we would all have a different list, except maybe Pastor. He likes the Packers. And I like the Cowboys, so. But why would I say that? What is devotion? What is devotion? What does that mean for us? We say it, it's Devout, devote, devoted. But, but what does it mean? It's something that I stand on, that I cling to, that I can't do without. And this is what they're devoted to. And prayer is part of this in the early church. And this idea of being devoted to prayer is not just a discipline. It's something I cling to. Are you devoted to breathing? Yes. You're devoted to eating. This is devotion. And for our relationship to our Father and our relationship to each other, we have to be devoted, not just in prayer, but in our fellowship. And that's the way it was in the early church. Just a a little historical note. 1,700 years later, just before the American War for Independence. The New England churches in Jonathan Edwards' day were plain meeting houses with unpainted clapboard on the outside and seating around a pulpit or desk near the center on the inside. In Northampton, Massachusetts, that's about halfway between Boston and Albany, New York, in case you wanted to know. Edwards followed this schedule with sermons of 60 to 90 minutes, one in the morning, one in the evening. But listen, the principal Sunday service consisted of 10 parts. A biblical text as a call to worship. Second, corporate prayer of approach. We are all together, and now we're going to pray together before we come before God. We are already accepted in Christ, are we not? Yes, but some time of confession of our sin needs to happen. 
And this was the practice. Third, Old Testament reading with the minister giving a short sense of the text. Fourth, New Testament reading with a sense of the text. Fifth, music, normally a song in meter. Sixth, prayer of confession and intercession. Seven, a sermon. Following the sermon. Eight, corporate prayer led by the minister, which lasted up to a half an hour. Because we're talking to God. Not because we have to, but because we ought to and we want to, like Mike prayed. Another psalm and then a benediction. Every eight weeks, they had the Lord's table. The believers were devoted to prayer. So Acts 2 shows us, after the preaching of the gospel, that when we pray together as all believers do with devotion, more than a discipline, but because we're children of God, he, he created us to have this capacity to have fellowship with him. Romans, Romans 8, verse 14. All who are led by the Spirit are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear. Oh, I wonder whether I'm saved. We, that's not the point. Even when we sin and we doubt. But you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Abba. That would be something like dad, daddy. To come to God with that kind of closeness and intimacy and boldness, but not arrogance. Just like you don't go before your dad in arrogance. The believers were devoted to prayer. As we get older at home with our parents, our conversations lean toward different topics. We find ourselves in disastrous places when we're not trying to be defiant. We call out for help. But the help is not for relief as much as strength and courage. The good kind of discipline that we need strengthening us. I'm thinking, what? I'm thinking of falling off my bicycle right after my training wheels came off. Scraped knees, those were the worst. We never wore helmets. We rarely wore gloves. You have as many scars as I do. Eventually, mom or dad let go of the back of the bike. Eventually, they let go. And that was the plan all along, wasn't it? Dad can't hold us on the bike without training wheels till we're 14. But the plan wasn't to remove us, but to set us free toward more maturity. Let's look at Acts chapter 4. Acts chapter 4 acknowledges that being more than a ministry, prayer is always in encouraging submission to the sovereignty of God. And this is why we are not losing hope and despair when our worlds come crashing in. In Acts 4, the apostles are preaching and the power structure in Jerusalem says, don't you talk about Jesus anymore. Sounds like some headlines, doesn't it? 4.23, when they were released, they went to their friends. They were devoted to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God. There's corporate prayer again. And said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heavens and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, why did the Gentiles rage and the peoples plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. For truly in this city, there were gathered together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do 
whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. God is sovereign. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. Look at the nature of their prayers. They're devoted to prayers, Acts 2 says. Now they're devoted to these, to these situations about which we, we can't do. We don't have power to execute and release ourselves. This young, brand new church prayed collectively for boldness to accomplish the sovereign will of God while opposition was forceful. This sort of prayer request is really encouraging since this is the prayer of the whole church. This is not just Peter's prayer. This is not just John's prayer. Everybody is feeling this pressure. I'm, I'm making this distinction only because it's not a personal prayer. It's not a selfish prayer. I don't, I don't mean selfish prayer, but personal. This is the kind of prayer that believers pray in these circumstances of coercive political pressure. But we do this together because outside is not anybody neutral, but an enemy for us. And we have to pray together in these situations. This is the kind of collective prayer we pray while trusting in the sovereignty of God and being devoted to one another. So now we're walking together through Acts. So Acts 4 reveals we're all encouraged in the sovereignty of God. So we pray together since we can't do otherwise. He knows everything. His energies are not spent with any activity he performs. And his presence is everywhere all the time. And he has a plan he's executing in and through us. Part of that plan is mediating his kingdom in fellowship among us and with us in prayer. We get older. And now we ask for different things from our parents. But the time for scraped knees, mercurochrome, bactine, peroxide. Mm -mm. Now we're praying for real safety. And God delivers us while we pray. Before we pray. Sometimes. Before we ask him. Because he knows what we need before we ask him. Sometimes in Acts 12, the concerns we have as a collective body over various matters that are of great concern to us all are answered during our prayer time while we are unaware, while we're serving, while we're thinking what we can do to minister to one another. And we, can, we, we need to start with prayer too often. I do it too, and you do it. Young believers are worst. They try everything and then they go to God. And God has a way of getting to the bottom of your list. But we aren't supposed to wind up there. We're supposed to start there. Acts 12, some real persecution begins to take place. James the apostle is executed. An apostle, one of the men who's responsible for teaching us. And he's dead. What's the threat? Verse 6. Now when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door, before the door regarding the prison. How will the believers, aware of this situation, pray? James has just died. Peter's in prison, and he's scheduled for the morning. 
How are we supposed to pray? James died. He's their teacher. He's their brother. Knowing God has both a mission for Peter and the church, and he's sovereign, and he did not choose to rescue James back to the jail cell. How would you pray? How would you pray? Verse 12, And behold, an angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side. Hey, get up. Get up quickly. And the chains fell off Peter's hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself, put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel. I'm sorry. He did not know that what was being done by the angel was real. But thought he was seeing a vision. What did Peter know? James just died. And I'm scheduled for tomorrow morning. And now the chains are off my hands. This has got to be a dream. Verse 10. When they passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord. Okay, are you still dreaming? And they went out and went along one street and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I'm sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people, all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark. He's going to show up again. And he's going to teach all of us too, isn't he? Where many were gathered together and were praying. And he knocked on the door of the gateway. A servant girl named Rhoda came to answer, recognizing Peter's voice. In her joy, she didn't open the gate, but ran in. And said, Peter's at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. What are they praying for? What were they praying for? Lord, please deliver him swiftly. Let it not be painful. Some people are saying, I can't pray that. Pray for his deliverance. Come on. He didn't pray for, he didn't re- choose to save James. Why is he going to save Peter? This is the persecution we were promised. We shouldn't be surprised by this. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept on insisting. She kept insisting. That means at least a couple times. She's had to go back and forth with them. Would you come here? Peter's outside. And they kept saying, it is his angel. You're looking at a ghost, Rhoda. But Peter continued knocking. (laughs) And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison and said, tell these things to James. This would be the brother of Jesus who would write the epistle for us and be the lead in the church in Jerusalem. And to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Okay, so sometimes the concerns we have collectively as a body over various matters that are of great concern to us all are being answered during our prayer time. God already knows, and when we come together to pray, he's answering that because it's consistent with what he wants us to do. And how do we know it's consistent with what he wants us to do? Or maybe not. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego said, Oh, king, we don't have to think about this or deliberate. If you, our God is able to save us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow down to your statue. So one way or the other, God is sovereign, God's glorified. It's hard for us to understand that, but that's what the text teaches us. And so he's answering our prayers while we are yet unaware. But sometimes we don't know how to pray as we ought to. Are we we're going to pray for him to have a merciful execution? <laughs> that hurts to say. Romans 8, 26. 
through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weaknesses, or our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. We ought to know what to pray for, and we don't know how to pray the way we ought to pray. We have ignorance upon ignorance as trouble. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us. I don't want to get ahead of Pastor Mike's sermon next week. We'll probably be here for a little while. He intercedes for us with groanings too deep. Pastor Daniel mentioned this this morning. Too deep with words, four words. No, they, there aren't words. We don't have words. We, we've all had our own pressures, our own serious issues. Our church has had some serious issues in the past that crush us all. And we have to pray together. And we are all praying together because we have one mind. We have the mind of Christ. And so we're beginning to pray more and more together as not just individually we mature, but as a body we mature. And he who searches the heart knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. So even when we pray together, and it seems like our prayer isn't answered, the Spirit of God prays, intercedes for us, especially when we are together. We know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, the good and the ill, that we feel the pressures of that ill with us. Okay, so now our questions, our conversations with our parents change again. Dad, I want to get a job. I need to get a job. Do you really know what I'm good at? Can, what am I good at? What kind of job should I go after? Which is going to spill over into schooling and mom and dad, can you tell me? How, how can I tell? Because I like too many things. There are too many choices. Okay, so Acts 13, with our devotion to the scriptures and to one another and God's sovereign control over us, we engulf opportunities for service in our prayers. Chapter 12, later on, immediately an angel of the Lord struck Herod down because he did not give the glory, give God the glory, and he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. So we had 3,000, we had 5,000, and now it's increasing, that's addition, and multiplied. So it's, we're, we're growing and growing, and Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem when they'd completed their service, bringing with them John, whose other name was Mark. Now there were at the church in Antioch prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, a lifelong friend of Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. While they were worshiping the Lord and fasting, the Holy Spirit said, Set apart for me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I've called them. Then, after fasting and praying, they, the church, laid their hands on them and sent them off. So being sent out by the, by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia and from there sailed on to Cyprus. So beloved, we have our devotion to Scripture, to the Father, to fellowship with one another, to prayers, to seeing Scripture informing our prayers and understanding better God's sovereign plan. We should expect opportunities God is going to reveal among us, through us, to one another, opportunities for service. And this happens in times when we're in corporate worship and prayer. 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 8. First of all, then I urge, this is a nice way to say command, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgiving, thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good. 
This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior. Look, we work with our mom and dad. And how old were you when the the switch finally clicked and you said, I'm going to do this because I know it makes mom happy. I know it makes dad happy. Paul tells us here, we're doing this because it's good. It's good. It's a good work that's not filthy rags. And it's pleasing to God. So we know we're obedient and we know he's making his face shine on us. How good can it be when we're involved in corporate prayer? Who desires all people to be saved and come to a knowledge of the truth. For there's one God and there's one mediator between God and men. The man Christ Jesus who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is a testimony given at the proper time. For this I was appointed preacher and apostle. I'm telling the truth. I'm not lying. A teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. I desire then that in every place men should pray, lifting holy hands without anger or quarreling. Oh my goodness. So now time goes on. You got your job. You got married. We talked about marriage in Sunday school. Sorry if you missed that. And now you're going to have children. And what, where do you go for advice? Mom, dad, did I ever do this? Mm-hmm. What did you do? Honey, don't touch that. Okay. Where do you go with child rearing? This is all so important. And as a local church, as we mature, and we see God developing us, bringing new believers in, and we're strengthening one another, our devotion to Christ is more more certain. In Acts 20, we see corporate prayer among the leadership of the church, securing the unity of our doctrine and it establishes and guards the security of the gospel by all of us, by all of us, within our midst, among us all. Acts 20, verse 17. Now from Miletus, he sent, Paul sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church. So the elders are called, they represent the whole church coming to meet with Paul. And when they came to him, they said, he said, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. Just one note on that progression, repentance toward God and faith in Christ. Everybody on television, maybe from the years, not everybody on television, but many, and the years we've grown up, we've heard people say, believe in Jesus but they didn't talk about repentance first. What are you going to call on Jesus to do? To save me, to rescue me from my sin. To rescue me. But but if I don't know sin's a problem, why am I going to call on Jesus? Why am I going to call on a Savior? What if I don't believe I'm a sinner? Paul says, you have to change your mind about Christ. You have to change your mind about your relationship to God. Yeah, me and God, we're cool. Not so much. You have a problem. Jesus said, you don't listen to me. You don't believe in me. And guess what? My words are going to judge you. The issues of sin are so real. And that's the difference. So whenever you, whenever we, are going to present the gospel, we have to talk about the bad news first, or the good news doesn't make sense, does it?
And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value or precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus, to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now, behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about Proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Another teacher's gone. What do we do? My dad said to me when I was 10 years old, buddy, I want you to do this. I want you to think about this. I want you to take care of mom because I'm not always going to be here. I remember the smell in the car and the color of the upholstery in the car when I looked up at him and thought, Why are you talking like that? (laughs) Who wants to hear that? But the time is coming when it's our place and our teacher is gone. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, beloved, this is so, so important. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and keep you and to give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel. You yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities what did Paul do for, for financial gain? To provide for his own needs. He made tents. And to those who are with me, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than receive. And when he'd said these things, he knelt down and prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. They embraced Paul and kissed him, being sorrowful most of all because of the word he had spoken that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. In Revelation chapter 2, verses 1 through 3, Jesus gives another epistle to the Ephesians. It's amazing. They had the epistle to the Ephesians, Timothy's in Ephesus, first and second Timothy. John was an elder at Ephesus. The epistle of John, second John, third John. Revelation chapter two would be now the seventh epistle to the Ephesians. And maybe you could even count Acts 20 as sort of an epistle. They had so much revelation given to this church. And how did it work? After they'd prayed, it says, this is the solemn pronouncement. I'm sorry. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands, I know your works your toil, and your patient endurance, the wolves are coming. And how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know you are enduring patiently and bearing up for my namesake, and you have not grown weary. God answered their prayers, and Paul's prayers that they would stay firm and consistent in the doctrine. So 
God makes us his children to have fellowship with him. And this is going to go on forever. One day, Jesus is going to deliver us from the presence of our own sin and collectively from all our sin at the adoption of the sons of God. When our bodies are made like his glorious body and we are no longer plagued by sin, no more sin in our thoughts, no more sin in our bodies, no more sin at all, no more death, no more pain, sorrow, crying, because the former things will be passed away. But for now, to get ready for that time, God has constituted us to have fellowship with him according to his word, recognizing his sovereign plan and how much we care for one another in corporate prayer. Not as a discipline today, that's not my focus today, but this is what believers do because the Spirit of God is in us. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we exalt you because you are our Father to whom we cry, Abba. We're thankful for the various ministries of intercession that we can do on behalf of one another. And Father, today I ask that as the Spirit of God in us would give us energy, that we would see the devotion of prayer together in this body as we have opportunity so that you are glorified so that we rejoice because we see your word at work in our lives in answer to prayer because we're asking for things that we know are pleasing to you because we know this is good. In Jesus' name, amen.